Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CF153, PBID a last stand for due contract with U.S. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 263, April 8, 1992. Tonight we are very privileged because we have a most unusual and important person with us as a guest, Paul Biddle. He is the man who has exposed the abuse and misuse and misappropriation of federal funds at Stanford University and of course at a great many other institutions from coast to coast. Paul Biddle is a dedicated Christian. He is a man, and I'm going to ask him to tell us more than a little about his past, who has had the unique distinction of having posters circulated with his picture on it with a high reward for his murder by the Viet Cong in Vietnam and uh, Stanford University seems to regard him as equally public enemy number one. <laughs> so it tells us something about the academic community of the United States. Uh, Paul, would you give us uh, a little bit of your personal history. Well, Rush, I am 47 years old. I have a family and a son. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest, attended a state school, Ohio State University, for my undergraduate degree. And uh, at the completion of my undergraduate degree with a bachelor's in finance, I went on to get my master's. And then the Vietnam War came upon, uh, but I had been in ROTC while I'd been at Ohio State. And shortly after I started my graduate work, uh, I dropped out after the first semester after I held a place there for my return after coming back from Vietnam, and I went on active duty. The time when you're in college in ROTC, and there are probably many ROTC graduates who listen to your tape, uh, we had a wish list when we graduated as to where we wanted to be assigned and what type of branch we wanted to be assigned to. And in my senior year in college, I had put my first choice as being Vietnam and being infantry or intelligence. And uh, I had done that because of I felt some very heartfelt advice from my advisors. I'd been a distinguished military student of, of sorts at Ohio State. And they said, if you want to become a commander of troops in the field and you want to look to the military as a career, which I was considering at that time, uh, you had best get some command time in a military uh, action area, which was Vietnam. So I went on active duty, went through infantry officer training at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then was assigned to preparation for a program that uh, here in the United States is called Phoenix Program. Uh, and was stationed up in the Washington area, uh, attended training, specialized training, went to Vietnam, 
was in two core central highlands in a province called Lamdong. Uh, remained there for eight months in the field, came back to two core headquarters area in the Trong, and at that point in time uh, decided I wanted to be an international banker. I had found the flavor of, of the international life, and I had a Chinese family who were my, the husband was my interpreter, and his wife and their children had become very close to me. I had no American troops under my command. I had all indigenous soldiers. And I decided I was going to study Chinese when I came back to the United States and become an international banker. So when I came back to the United States, I continued my master's program, studied Chinese at Stanford for a summer, and went to work for First National City Bank of New York uh, in Europe. And after working in Europe, I was a bit disappointed. I found it to be a very stilted environment, very little class mobility for people who were coming out of schools and hadn't laid the, the rails through their families to get good jobs. I found an absence of class mobility. And I inquired of the bank as to whether I could be reassigned to Asia, which I felt was much more a, a developing and burgeoning area. And they assigned me to Asia, I went to the Philippines first, then to Hong Kong, to Japan, and ultimately ended up in working in many of the countries of Asia, from India to Korea, and then going to work uh, with a Japanese family-owned business. Stayed with them for four years, then went to work for Pete Marwick Mitchell, an American CPA firm in Tokyo. Came back uh, to the United States, worked with the emergence of the Japanese investments in the United States, saw how that occurred, recognized that there were many instances of giveaways, uh, less than full price being obtained for access to our markets, and decided to switch off into an area outside of international practice. I went to work for Coopers and Libran, and one of the first engagements I handled, because my expertise was not only accounting but data processing, we determined how much it would cost to desegregate Los Angeles Unified School District. And that was done in conjunction with Arthur D. Little out of Boston. That was done in a manner that I think was very responsible, and uh, Tom Lawson of the Los Angeles Unified School District, who was the deputy superintendent, had nothing but praises for the, the manner in which we had accomplished that. We could tell you how much the tires would cost on the buses for the various alternative methods of integration. We could tell you how many hours a child would be on a bus under this program versus that program. That level of definition was something that uh, decision makers needed to be apprised of. When I left there, I took over Coopers and Libran's Management Advisory Services offices in Honolulu, which was marketing to American multinationals and Japanese corporates and coming into the West Coast and going out to Asia. And uh, that was a very enjoyable time in my life. I, I would suggest anyone that has an opportunity to go out to Hawaii and work for a year, and it's not to be passed by. But at the end of a year, I had an opportunity that was quite unique. IBM was in, involved in one of the largest antitrust actions in the United States since the time of Standard Oil in New Jersey. And their offensive 
their legal firm, Kravitz Swain Moore out of New York, were interviewing individuals and firms for developing what we call an offensive case strategy. If you are sued, you not only have to defend yourself, but in many instances you have to prove things that are in your best interest. And when you get into antitrust, it's heavy in financial accounting aspects, as well as pulling data from large masses of computerized information. IBM chose Coopers and Libran and myself to handle the IBM versus Transamerica case. And there were two partners with me on that. And that was probably my second major piece of complex litigation that uh, I addressed accounting and EDP skills to, the first being Los Angeles Unified School District desegregation. Um, with IBM, I felt very comfortable uh, that we could justify the offensive case strategy of Kravitz Swinmore. And ultimately, as you recall, IBM did win that case. That gave me a position at that time of having probably some of the most beneficial experience to do with EDP and financial support of complex litigation, and I went on to establish the EDP and financial uh, support of complex litigation practice for another major accounting firm here in the United States called Alexander Grant. And within roughly a year and a half after that, I began my own practice, uh, which ran from 1980 to 1985, and I went back into doing the international. We all get burned out on things, and we should all have a change. So uh, I still use the EDP and financial aspects, but use my banking background uh, in developing my own practice. In 85, I sold that, disposed of my client list, and looked around for something to do that I thought would have an impact where I could make a difference. And I saw... At that time, we were hearing things about the very expensive toilet seats that the Air Force was buying and the hammers. And I thought, well, I can understand that from an accounting standpoint, but how does the system allow those exceptions to become the norm? And the only way you find that out is by becoming a part of it. You'll never fathom a situation until you, you've walked a mile in their shoes, so to speak. And... Uh, I approached some of the people who I had met in government uh, during the Carter administration. I'd become very much involved with transfer pricing accrued on the high seas when I was with Alexander Grant. That was another major engagement. So I went to Washington and I talked to some of the people in government as to what opportunities there might be. And they gave me a very disappointing future. They said, if you're in Washington, you can never cause change. The people in the field will do whatever they want to anyway. And you're only here for a brief period of time as a political appointee. They said, if you really want to cause change, you're going to have to get down to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of government. And I attempted then to talk to people here in California about finding an opportunity to do just that. And there was tremendous apathy about someone of my age and experience going to work as a hands-on auditor in the Department of Defense. Uh, they said, you'll be disappointed, uh, you won't have a continued level of interest. But finally, a fellow named Paul McGregor, 
was able to convince some people on the West Coast in the Western region of the Defense Contract Audit Agency that he was a fellow who had a roughly five years of non-compete time, and it would be beneficial to the federal government if he was allowed to get involved with the defense contracting operation. And that is how I got into government. I came in, and the first contractor that I worked for was a major defense contractor. And on the particular contract that we identified, we knocked roughly 30% of the cost out of it. Now, that's on a proposed cost to do a major weapons procurement system. That demonstrated to me that many of the things that I'd seen in the private sector associated with redundant systems, associated with layering and effect of one period of time in a company versus the progression into another style of management where you get layering of bureaucracies, was operative in the federal government, too, and in the contracting establishment. So the next thing that I went after um, had to do with not so much what we call sloppiness, as I attempted to see if there was intent associated with it, or the appearance of intent. And on the next defense contractor that I went after, which was another major defense contractor, I found that they were billing amounts in excess of that permitted by the federal law. Uh, and it had been approved by their corporate headquarters in Baltimore. Uh, that gave me even more confidence that we had a system that was out of control because these things should have been caught by other people. They shouldn't have been caught by a fellow who was fresh out of the, uh, the basket and, and looking at these things. These were system-type problems that could have been caught easily. I did that for three years, and at the end of three years, I was pretty well burnt out. I'd worked on voluntary frauds, disclosures, uh, some high-profile defense contractors in Silicon Valley, and... I found the Defense Contract Audit Agency did not have the quality of audit effort that was necessary to address the taxpayers' needs. When we get good staff, they would be making thirty to thirty-five thousand at most, and the defense contractors would hire them away for forty k if they were any good. So we ended up having a residual of contract auditors who were either fresh out of school, using it as a training ground to advance their own careers, or we ended up having people who were not aggressive and assertive about protecting the taxpayer's money. Because those were the ones contractors love, where they can do an audit and find nothing but give them a few issues to talk about. So at that point, I, I decided to back out, and I had turned in my resignation in October... September 1988, and as I say, I was involved with audit at that point. There's, there's a three-pronged stool to federal purchasing. First one is someone has to say what we're going to buy. Second one is someone has to evaluate the cost. That's the audit function I was involved with. And the third one is someone has to pick up the contract and make it work over the period of time. I had never been involved in either of the other two legs, and in October 88, I was given the opportunity to 
pick up responsibilities at Stanford University on another leg of the stool, and that is making the contracts work once they've been signed. And that's called contract administration. And in contract administration, you have responsibilities for evaluating the validity and reasonableness of charges to the federal government in the conduct of a contract. Uh, you have the responsibility for determining whether they're taking adequate uh, and proper care of government equipment entrusted to them to conduct whatever work they're to do. And it's a, it's a different approach, but you still rely upon the auditors. So when I came into Stanford, I was learning a new skill area, but I was relying a great deal upon the awarenesses and knowledge that I had developed as an auditor within the Department of Defense. And shortly after I arrived at Stanford, I began to see the same type, I shouldn't say the same type, but abuses with similar effect as I had noted in the types of defense contractors that all of us shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's what you'd expect of a defense contractor. I was seeing the same type of attitude on the part of a university that uh, we normally associate much higher fiduciary calling with. And that, that brought me up to Stanford. And that's been the last three years uh, of my life, from 1988 to 19... Well, just this past year, March 5th, was my last day as a government employee. I resigned at that time. Uh, before we go into what you found at Stanford and ask questions, uh, I'd like to introduce those who are here with me. Of course, our regulars, Otto Scott and Douglas Murray. But we also have with us Susan Alder of Virginia, a freelance writer and a very good one. Uh, we've all heard a great deal through the media about what you did at Stanford. <laughs> uh, do any of you want to ask a question to start off the discussion of the Stanford situation? I remember hearing and uh, reading a news article about you that when you walked through the door, or pretty soon after you walked into the offices at Stanford, you knew something was wrong. Could you tell us about that and what led you to... Well, that occurred in October of 1988, and I'd been there roughly a week uh, when that instance occurred. The university tried to represent utilization of various resources on the campus, such as the libraries, by modeling, and then would charge the federal government on the basis of the models. And as I told you, having done the Los Angeles Unified School District desegregation where we used models and uh, with IBM when we had used models for antitrust, I felt very comfortable with models. And I'd done my doctorate work. My, I hadn't obtained my degree, but in the course preparation for my Ph.D. at the University of Cincinnati, uh, I had a particular interest in modeling and, and staff. So... Within a week of the time I arrived at Stanford, Stanford's assistant controller, Janet Sweet, invited myself and my predecessor, Rob Simpson, to sit in on a 
show and tell regarding this is why we charge the federal government this percentage of our library costs <laughs> for federal research. And I looked at the documentation provided to us, and it was, to say it nicely, it was modest. It, <laughs> there was not very much demonstration of causality. There was little more than a method of computation depicted without any of the things one would normally expect to find in a model, such as justification for your premises, testing of givens, and so on. So I became a little bit suspect of the model, but not so much of the results, because oftentimes you can have a flawed model which will provide accurate output, accurate measures of, of the mm -hmm. real world. The next thing to do, though, was, I thought, to make a analytical determination as to whether the amounts of money they were seeking by this model, however it might be flawed, were reasonable. And what I observed there was that Stanford was obtaining roughly three times as much as any other university in the country for their library facilities. So that told me, one, I had the appearance of a flawed model, and two, analytically, they were way out on the skewed end of the distribution mm -hmm. uh, for the amount of monies they were taking from the federal taxpayer. And I brought this up to the university and to my superior, and they said, we've always done it this way in the past, and we don't see any reason to change now. And that was the beginning of the fallout between myself and Stanford University. They felt they had no necessity to demonstrate the validity of their claims. And I felt, as a representative of the taxpayer, which I, I felt was a very high fiduciary responsibility, that it was absolutely required that I demand they demonstrate how they came up with those levels of reimbursement. And that, that happened, as you say, shortly after I arrived, within the first month. How many years had Stanford... Uh, claims gone unchallenged. Stanford's claims had never been challenged until I came there. Um, and that would be, they've been a major defense contractor for 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter that, uh, in fact, I, I have to believe that, in fact, I, I know as a fact, I spoke to my superiors, they likewise were aware of the disproportionate level of reimbursement at Stanford these are the other universities and had not challenged it. Now that shows to me they were derelict. There might have been occasion why they felt it was pragmatically unacceptable to challenge a, a national icon like Stanford University. They feared for their jobs. But if that's not what we're paid for, I hope that's not what we pay our civil servants for. Uh, we expect them to have a higher calling and they should sound the alarm. They are the watchdog for the federal treasury. Who so, <coughs> what department in Stanford drew up this model? Controller's office. The controller's office. <coughs> and it was done by a particular group in there called Government and Cost Rate Studies Group. I see. How much was the total amount at the time you left? I believe it went back to 1983. You didn't go back beyond that, or did you? I went back to 1980. 
The university insisted that they had worked out a special agreement with my predecessors that locked up the years 1981, 82, and 83. Uh, and I disputed that, still dispute it, uh, and I don't think it's going to, to be sustained in court if we can just get this thing to court. Mm -hmm. uh, I chose to look at the amount of abuse for the entire period of the 10 years plus 1991 projected costs. I estimated roughly 50 million in, in overcharges associated only with the library and the special studies associated with the library reimbursements. Defense Contract Audit Agency reviewed it. They took a different approach to evaluating it than I did, which I think is beneficial. It allows us to triangulate on the amount rather than just replicating my effort. And they came up with approximately 30 million that they saw uh, based upon preliminary evaluation. Uh, they now have begun the audits of all prior years, and the last we've heard where the library is a component of the total overcharging is that it will be roughly $310 million of overcharging before interest and penalties. But the library is only one part of that $310 million. Rush recently read aloud to me the fact that <coughs> Stanford University has had a fundraising drive and has raised $1,300,000,000. Do you have any idea of what percentage of Stanford's income came from the federal government? Well, the $1.3 billion of fundraising would not reflect direct transfers from the federal government to Stanford. No, I know. But if you're saying what amount of federal funding comes into Stanford in a year, say, we spend between 300 and $400 million a year at Stanford. Out of the, well, that would be Stanford's income from the federal government. Correct. And what's its overall income? I'm having to extrapolate in my mind just right. a moment here. Yes. Um, in the neighborhood we account in government for roughly 35% to 40% of their revenues traditionally every year. Well, so that would put them over a billion dollars oh, a year. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, they're having over a billion dollars a year in income. Right. But I'm, I'm trying to give you something very specific. But you're in the ballpark there. Yes. If that's what you're looking for is a ballpark yes. figure. Yes. So a billion dollars a year, and that's not enough to run the university. How many people in the university? Well, there are 13,000 students and a comparable number of faculty. It has one of the... Equal. Well, let's include administrative people with right. faculty. If yes. you're including... Uh, Staff, let's put it right, that way. Yeah. Staff versus students, it probably has close to a one and a half to one ratio. Uh, That's not a very efficient corporation. Well, you can almost tuck the students in at bed at night with that type of a head. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, I think what is more important is that you only have containment of cost when there are constraints on a system. Academics traditionally have never envisioned constraints on their systems. Uh, they are purists in the sense that any price is worth the deliverable. And that's the reason that we have runaway costs not only in our
college education, but we experience it in research, we experience it in our secondary schooling system, we experience it throughout the educational establishment. There are, if we look at the aspects of cost in education which have grown most significantly, it's the middle management costs within secondary education that have grown. Of course, the, the myth is that Stanford is a private university. Federal <laughs> university. <laughs> uh, Most of them are now. That's the reality. Yes. yes. I think even if you look at the contributions to the endowment fund, the people who are major contributors to Stanford, many of them live off the largesse of the federal government. We, as, a, as the taxpayers in our federal purchasing and contracting, have made a lot of people rich. Well, don't forget that every uh, endowment to the university is tax-exempt. It's uh, written off. It's a write-off. That's given rise to a lot of abuses. At Stanford University, the faculty, I thought, had the gumption and uh, the, the chutzpah to go down and tell the state of California that they felt they shouldn't pay property taxes. At all? At all. What about taxes on equipment that they buy? Well, they don't. Uh, that's that, okay, now that, that there can be an argument made for, but you're right. They do not pay taxes on that. But I'm talking about where the university owns land, leases the land for 99 years to a faculty member, and he builds a house on it. Faculty said, even though it's our house, we shouldn't have to pay property tax because we're part of the, the system. We're an educationally exempt operation. Well, you've just lifted a piece of the curtain that's been shrouding the largest and most corrupt industry in the United States. Yes, the university systems. The educational system. The educational system. system as a whole. As a whole. Untold multi-millions pour down that rat hole with no accounting to the public. And the only thing that I associate with education in the United States is the demand by the educators for more money. Yes, and the NEA asks of candidates uh, not what their premise and belief is, but do you agree with the NEA or do you disagree? And it will list page after page of things. The question is not whether or not the candidate is working for something that's uh, reform, but do you agree with the NEA? That's the only thing that counts. And it is the most powerful single lobby in the United States. Union. <coughs> union, yes. It is a union. Paul, when, uh, when you made this known to your um, uh, uppers at, at work, were they grateful to you for what you had exposed? Well, <laughs> we have to operate under the mindsets that I have now. Recognize my coming in to Stanford. I had no indication of the extent or the pervasiveness of the abuse that I have now. So when I came in, I was picking up a little thread here, a little thread there, and I'd follow it back a ways, and I'd see, oh, this is improper. 
that all of us have improprieties in our life. We foul up on this or that. Not out of intentional uh, abuse of a system, but sometimes we just fall. And, and God always expects us to fail. He just expects us to get back up and get on track. Well, that was the premise I was operating with with the people in the Navy. I thought, well, maybe they're just not aware of this. And if I bring it to their attention, boy, they'll focus in on it and really get it straightened out. Wrong, huh, Wrong, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after I was there for, I was February of 1989, uh, I had told one of my assistants, and I only had one that I had inherited, I said, we're going to start going out now and validating the assertions of Stanford on their records of charges, and I expect you to go out with a pencil and paper and check these things out against payroll checks and what have you. She says, I've never done that in my life. And I said, well, I think now's a good time to start. So she found another job, and she went to work for another part of the defense establishment. Well, I was left with no one, but I had gone to my superiors and I had told them what I was seeing unfolding before my eyes. And I said, you know, I'm an accountant, you folks are not. I said, I think it's really important that people who spend an oversight to contracts have an accounting background, but you don't, so I'm going to help you. Here's what I see. And they took violent exception to this. And they said, well, how could these things be happening? And I said, I think we've got some problems with these memoranda of understanding we've made in prior years. Little did I realize that my superior and his superior had written these memoranda <laughs> over the past <laughs> ten years. So I never received any help, replacement for my assistant, for five months. And you have to recognize we're doing roughly half a billion dollars worth of research a year. And I started trying to pick up the slack. And I was working long hours. I mean to the point of 14-hour days, seven days a week, up until May. And in May, physically, I just fell apart. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point in time, I, you know, I was sick for like a week. I couldn't even stand. I was just totally exhausted and uh, I might have pushed on a little bit further but the thing that kicked it over was uh, my superior's boss the director for the western part of the United States said you're doing such a fine job with this I don't think you need any assistance and I thought oh, wait a second you know I'm working these long hours you know I'm sick and you're not going to give me the help well what if I feel happened at that time was they did not want to encourage a Paul Biddle to remain on station. I can't substantiate that in any way. I don't have memos to that point. But I think at that point on the West Coast there was an effort afoot to discourage me from going further with my inquiry. Because having to do all the administrative work, and the administrative work was piling up, I would send a fax up and I'd say, I'm now four weeks behind, I'm now six weeks behind, I need help, I need an administrative assistant. And I was getting no responses. Finally, I just said, that's not in my job description. I'm here to protect and to manage, not to do the work of, in effect, what now is three people. 
now there are three people doing what I did by myself mm -hmm. for five months. They then said, find someone to work there. And I found another person in government who wished to come to Stanford. And we had difficulties because my concept of aggressiveness and assertiveness and how you go in and evaluate things. I found the person who the government gave me uh, could not fully comprehend the provisions and terms of a contract for research. Well, it's very hard to determine whether the contractor is complying with the contract if the person evaluating that cannot really understand the terms and provisions of the contract. So I, I said, I need a second person, and this time I'm going to hire someone from the outside. I'm not going to take a government employee. I'm going to open it up for recruitment outside of government. And that met with a lot of resistance. And it leads me to think now one of the positions I had is that we should never allow people. You talk about term limits on congressmen. We should have periods of employment for administrative agency employees where they can work for a set period of time, maybe six to eight years in government, and then they have to go to work in the private sector for two to three years to blow some of the cobwebs out of their mind. And likewise, we should bring some of these people from the private sector into government for a period of time. And specifically, I'm talking about public service for attorneys, CPAs, uh, statisticians, that type of thing, where they have some sort of federal or state certification that allows them to earn a living. They should do some commensurate service in return uh, to make things clean within our government. I understand the Navy tried to settle behind your back for a few cents on the dollar and that you had to research how you could prevent that. Could you tell us about that? Um, I can talk to you about the research I did, Rush. Uh, the Department of Justice has a real tricky uh, provision within the False Claims Act that says you cannot talk about actions under seal. And if there were a quitan in place, it would be under seal. But I, I can tell you things that I did uh -huh. preparatory to this time. Uh, which was September time frame of last year. I, for 14 months, I was bringing up issues of cost to the federal taxpayer, to the Navy, and being very vocal, being very vehement that they needed to get on top of these things. And they would keep deferring and say, well, we can't do anything until an audit has been accomplished. And in some instances, uh, they skewed the description of the audit expecting a favorable reply. I sat at a table one day when a senior Navy administrator from Washington was in California in, in Palo Alto and asked of the head of uh, the audit team reviewing Stanford whether or not they agreed with an assertion I had made. And the DCA audit supervisor said, we concur with Mr. Biddle's findings. And he said, what did you say? He said, we concur with Mr. Biddle's findings. He said, you've read the things Mr. Biddle has said about you people, that you didn't do decent audits in the past, that he was critical of the way you had handled your responsibilities. This is your last chance to get back at Mr. Biddle. Otherwise, I think Mr. Biddle might be right. Now, that's no way to conduct 
the taxpayer's business. Mm-hmm. That is, once we see there's a problem, governments should come together and say, well, we might have had a, a foul-up in the past, but now let's get on top of this thing. But would you compare this to, mm-hmm. first of all, it's obviously a long-standing situation that you'd uncovered. Yes. And people prefer the even tenor of their ways. It's much easier. You can put in a normal day's work. You don't have to work 14 hours a day. And you can go home, go to bed, go to sleep. Nobody is rocking the boat. And there's a built-in resistance to change and a built-in resistance to rocking the boat and a built-in resistance to extra work which is provoked by a newcomer on the scene. Would you, would you say that uh, I, I think sort of a, a stagnation that sets in in the bureau? Everything, everything was running for Stanford was happy, the Navy was happy, the taxpayers of course are looted all the time. That's right. And they're not aware. And they're not aware of it. And there's no investigative journalist, no matter what the newspapers say. I haven't seen any in recent years. But when you have closed negotiations, it's hard for the public to find out anything. My, my, uh, one of my other premises is that public business should be just that, public business. Yes. So uh, I think what you're saying is very much accurate, Otto, that when you have a situation that has continued for a long period of time, there is a certain reluctance to expose it and fess up to it. Yes. And, and that's, that's associated with possibly a governmental mentality that says, we never got enough money to do the work in the first place. We never had enough bodies. We never had qualified people. And if we've made a mistake, well, let's correct it, but let's not make a big thing of it. Now, that, that was exemplified when I brought these things up. I had been put on probation, what I consider probation. The Navy now says, oh, we never put Mr. Biddle on probation. But for 120 days, my duties were reassigned. Uh, all my authorities were taken away. That, to me, sounds like an administrative probation. Uh, so, who intervened on your behalf to uh, change the Navy's attitude? For the probation or overall? Overall, who and what? Congressman John Dingle. Uh-huh. Congressman John Dingle. But at the, at the end of that 120-day probation, I realized that this was not just a malady associated with too few people and too little effort. This was an intentional effort. When I confronted people in the Navy about this, they said, "Well, our mission is not just to procure research." Our mission is to support education. Oh, that was a very noble excuse <laughs> to say, wasn't it? They took the high ground. And Ed- education is the American religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked back to the administrative agency charter, and I said, where within our charter does it say that we're supposed to do transfer payments? We're meant to procure. We're meant to buy. We're not running aid for dependent colleges. And <laughs> so... At that point, I realized there was a severe tilt that had nothing to do with what I'd consider a gentlemanly way of covering up some bad business. But these were people who, for whatever reason, had perpetrated a real abuse on the taxpayer. By the fact 
that I saw no one else around me that wanted to rise up to the occasion. And I, I mean, I fought for this within the Navy. I, it was not that Paul Biddle stood like a, a doorpost. I went out and I would buttonhole this person or that person. I said, we got to do something about this. What can we do about it? And I would always get this put down. Were these uniformed people that you no. dealt with? No. No. Uniformed people I found in the naval, Navy uh, that once something can be demonstrated and proven to them where they have no wiggle room, uh, they respond. Mm-hmm. But bureaucrats in, in civilian attire, they're a different breed. Uh, they are very self-serving. Uh, and I don't know whether it has to do with civil service. Some of them have high calling. High calling? Yes. You, I mean, I couldn't have gotten where I am today if we didn't have some civil servants who did have a sense of high calling. Right. But there are a great many people in our civil service who milk the public unmercifully. So during that 120-day period, I became a man with a mission. And I, I sat down and I worked through my own mind what I thought the scope of wrongdoing would be, the total dollar figure in Stanford. And I started then looking into what I thought were the instances of abuse across the country. At other places. At other places. And I identified 42 universities from correspondence and documents I had that had been accumulated over the past 10 years within the Navy. 42? 42. That I thought were meaningful abuses. Including Ivy League? Oh, yes, most definitely. Harvard Medical School was one of the people that I thought really had done a number on us, as well as MIT. So that information I set on until I had it pretty well documented because I realized I couldn't go off half-cocked to push this type of an agenda. I mean, it was going to be a knockdown, drag-out brawl. And the first person that I went to with it was my minister. Because I actually went to my mother first, excuse me. I went and talked to her because I felt she was nearly 80 years old at that time. And I thought, well, if I get into this, this she could be vastly embarrassed by a young son who gets buried by the bureaucracy. And all, every mother says, this is my son, and he's done this, and I'm so proud of him. Well, what if her son comes along and comes up a cropper? So I, you know, I had to explain to her the downside risk on this. And her position was, she says, you shouldn't do it. No one will ever appreciate what you do. And if you fail, which might likely be the case, because not too often do good-hearted people come out on top, she said, it'll be a, a stigma associated with you for the rest of your life. And but she knows that I've always risen to the occasion. I've always done what I thought is right, and she didn't have much effect, and she's gotten used to that in 80 years, right? <laughs> so I then went to my minister, and I spoke to him, and... Uh, He is another person of substantial years and experience. I don't know how old Mr. Milbank is, but... uh, I believe he's 79. 79? Well, he and... Norman Milbank. He is an exceptional fellow. He doesn't doesn't think of himself as exceptional. I mean, he's not that type. But one thing I observed is in his ministry and his accomplishments, uh, he's really been blessed. And he's paid his dues. So... When I portrayed the situation to him, I gave him a week to think about it. Now, he had reason to be supportive of me. I'm one of his parish, and at that time I was a member of the vestry, so he, was, he would be supportive by nature and inclination. But he came back with a fervor uh, a week later saying, 
you know, all of us look for this opportunity where we have the insight, the awareness, and the knowledge to do something about what we popularly characterize as waste and abuse. You have the opportunity, you have the skills, and you have the personality. So I think God would want you to do something like that. So with that type of support, I sat down and I tried to figure out how to implement the correction. I had identified the abuse. Now it was a matter of figuring out how to make the correction occur. What intrigues me most is the fact that the opposition to the exposure came from those who favor education. Now, if it had been presented from the beginning as a Defense Department boondoggle against a manufacturer, there would have been an entirely different swing of sentiment. The manufacturer, they had no hesitation about pillaring, burning at the stake, a defense manufacturer. Yeah. But because it's an educational institution, you're stepping onto holy ground. Well, I, I think you're talking about something that's putting the best face on a bad situation. These people who enunciated those positions were people who, on their retirement, would look for a second job within the universities. Uh, we have, well, at Stanford University, we had a gentleman by the name of Bill Wilkin, who was a, a very senior administrator within the Office of Naval Research who oversaw federal research. When he left the Navy, he went to work for Stanford. Uh, we had another individual, not quite as high a position, but another senior government official who went to work for MIT. Uh, same, as, same as with a manufacturer. Yes. It's, it's the same situation. So it's not so much the fact that they're interested. I, I shouldn't say that they're not interested in education. That would be presumptive on my part. But if you're standing on the outside looking in, you can say there might be some motivations why these people are so positive on education apart from the fact mm -hmm. that education has merit. Uh, and that, that is, I think, the breakdown more than anything else. You, you talk about we've lifted up uh, the curtain or something like that. Right. I, I, I commented, I said, this is the camel sticking their nose under the tent flap. And it's not just that we're seeing now a microcosm of abuse university against the taxpayer, but we're seeing a microcosm of the abuse of our federal government in their lax vigilant and oversight of the entire process. What you're talking about here is a system of national corruption in which they're nibbling away at the treasury and they're nibbling away at the taxes. They're nibbling away at the earnings of the American people and they're spending them in profligate ways and they want to keep on doing it. What would you say as of the time span you covered, the 80s, in principle and interest, uh, Stanford owes the United States and the taxpayer. Well, I, over a year and a half, almost two years ago, estimated that it would be 300 million and 100 million of that. This is principle now. We're not talking about interest. We're just talking about the amount of overcharging. I said there was. In my awareness, I felt there would be likely 300 million of overcharging. 
100 million of that we'd never be able to collect on because of the staleness of the documentation. We wouldn't be able to find records to support our case in court. In the GAO findings and in the government audit findings from the Defense Contract Audit Agency presented to the Congress and Congressman Dingell's subcommittee, they've estimated $310 million from Stanford. And they're not completed yet. They've only looked at two of the five areas of abuse that I've identified. I would say, let's do on the conservative side. Say it does, they're, they're not able to find another dollar, which I find <laughs> unbelievable. Uh -huh. But if they were unable to find another dollar, you're talking $300 million over a period of 10 years should develop in the neighborhood. Because we had very high interest rates at the beginning of the 80s. Uh, I think we would probably be able to expect doubling of that amount from the interest. So another $300 million from the interest. But the penalties uh, that could be brought to bear on Stanford, especially if we can, uh, and I, I don't think this is very difficult to show either, that they did things that a reasonable and prudent person would not have done, uh, the penalties may amount to another $300 million. So we're, we're talking a substantial amount of change there. Uh, and it, I, some people have said it's, it's embarrassing to get that kind of a recovery from one contract or one university that has such a noble endeavor. But I would think we haven't the bodies to police the entire establishment. And therefore, you, when you go after a contractor who abuses a trust, especially one that's a teacher, or these people who are administrators were teachers at one time, so we repose a higher degree of trust in those people than we do in the people that turn out widgets. We, if we find an abuse pattern, and this pattern existed for more than 10 years, it was pervasive. We never had a memoranda of understanding at Stanford that did not benefit Stanford financially. Out of a hundred and some memoranda of understanding, all of them benefited the university. The next nearest number of memoranda of understanding at a university was MIT, which I believe had 12. So Stanford was gilding the lily. Well, what do you do when you find someone abusing the trust in this manner and you have very few people to police the situation? My feeling is you set the tone, you set the example with that school, no matter how difficult it is to, to say, gee, these are nice people, because you have to bring in line all those universities and institutions where you don't have the time or the resources to go in. You have to encourage self-policing. And it's not that the law was not known to Stanford when they began. Stanford is probably one of the highest, most recognized universities in our country and possibly in the world for quality. To say that they cannot understand the federal regulations with which the lawyers from their law school write, I find is then expecting a lot more of common people to do their 1040 tax returns. Their liability must exceed then a, a billion dollars at present. Potentially. Now that, whether or not we'll ever collect that is a question that uh, I think should be on the minds of many taxpayers. 
The reason being is the Navy can forgive and forget. Now, Otto brought up, or perhaps it was you, Rush, about there was a Navy intent perhaps not to collect every penny they could have. And that was associated with the Navy choosing to audit only two years out of the ten and doing a projection of overcharging based on those two years. Now, anyone who's a lawyer will tell you that in order to enforce a claim, you have to have what's called specificity and particularity. That means you cannot say, I'm drawing an inference based upon this sampling, and I want you to pay on the basis of it. Now, you can only make someone pay if you have specificity, and that means we would have had to have audited all 10 years. Well, I would say just one <coughs> comment on the business of the widgets. <coughs> that Representative Bentley in the Baltimore area <coughs> told me that <coughs> the, there is a, a fastener crisis in the United States. Fasteners are these little gadgets that put things together and hold them together. We've been buying fasteners from Europe and from Latin America. And they've discovered that we do not monitor the quality of the fasteners that they provide. So therefore, these are in inferior and very important little items that have pervaded the whole defense manufacturing industry. And what you are portraying is a piece of overall corruption because what is corruption? Corruption isn't always taking money out of the till and putting it in your pocket. Corruption is not doing your job. Collecting money from the government for indifferent performance and not caring about the quality of what you're producing. Stanford may be uh, rated very highly, but Stanford Law School is the only place that I was ever booed at when I lectured. And I'll never forget it because one of the leaders of the booing was a barefoot girl with her feet up over the seat. Well, our time is just about ended. And uh, we haven't done more than uh, skim over the subject. But I think all of us are deeply grateful to you, Paul, because... You've done something no one else has tackled. You uh, were a highly decorated soldier in Vietnam, and you have received the Navy's highest award to a civilian for your work at Stanford. It's a pity that taxpayers don't have an award to offer to men, because you most certainly deserve it, and one good result is that all the universities in the country are now running scared because of your work. Let's hope the scare straightens them out. We are all very, very grateful to you, Paul, for your work. And God bless you in anything and everything you do in the days ahead. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.